the National Archives podcast series, The Problem of the Poor, Faith, Science and Poverty in 19th Century Britain, presented by Dr John Shaw. In this talk, I'm going to look at poverty and attitudes towards the poor as a class of people in the last 75 years, or from around about the 1820s and 30s through to the late 19th century, with a special emphasis on the later part of the century. And in doing so, we're going to look at a range of historical sources, um, text, visual images, I'm going to refer to newspapers, and also to intellectual history, the history of ideas at the time. And fundamentally, we're going to look at how religious attitudes changed over the period and how something else happened. The understanding of the poor and poverty became inflected or shaped. It was given a voice by the later part of the 19th century through the developing understanding of science and the application of some areas of science to social theory and the understanding of society. So that's where we're going to go very briefly. There are two fundamental ways at the time of explaining why the poor are poor and why some poor people persisted in their poverty throughout generations. One set of explanations relates to the moral failings of the individual, that poor people are poor because of some failing or fault in them, and that the remedy for poverty, the social cure for poverty, involves making that individual somehow better, remodelizing them, rehabilitating them somehow, so that they work their way out of their poverty and their criminality and their deviance and so on. The other type of explanation focuses on the environment within which the poor live. The poor live hard and brutal lives surrounded by poverty, misery, deprivation in dreadful circumstances and that in a sense, that environment preconditions their poverty. In the east end of London for example there is widespread unemployment for most of the um, uh, 19th century to a greater or lesser degree and more importantly there's a very um, high level of underemployment. That's a jargon term that economists use. What it means is people who are not fully employed, they're either working part-time or they're casual labour. Builders, labourers, for example, get very little work in the winter but quite a lot of work in the summer. So for a large part of the year, they're likely to be unemployed. Similarly, portering work in markets like Spitalfields Market um, tended to be more seasonal um, so they would actually have great job insecurity and earn very little and their work itself would be very, very seasonal. That environment, to some people, explained why the poor were poor and so often remained poor. What I wanted to move on to look at was how this explanation, the nature versus nurture argument, the poor are poor because of their nature, the poor are poor because of the environment they live in, how they're nurtured, um, how it works through religious thought and attitudes at the time. The particular focus I'm going to look at is the East End of London leading into and out of the 1880s. I suppose 
there's an underlying view in Christian churches in the 19th century about the poor that's always been there, and it had been there since the Middle Ages. Been there for as long as we have church records, really. And that is that the poor are part of God's creation, and it's part of our responsibility to take care of the poor. We don't have to give them a lot, and we don't have to give generously, and we don't actually even have to feel very good about it when we're doing it. But the fact is that there's a sort of broad responsibility for all God's creatures, and the poor are, after all, God's creatures. But that, of course, isn't the end of the story. If we go back to the first half of the 19th century, then we find that there's a prevailing view in the Church of England, which is the major church um, in England and Wales, but also in the Presbyterian Church, which is the major church in Scotland, and you find it through, and perhaps this is not familiar to some of you, what are called nonconformist churches or dissenting churches, those churches that don't belong to the big national church of England, but people like Baptists, Methodists, Unitarians, Quakers, and so on, but less so Quakers. But there's a prevailing view of the poor that actually places a great deal of emphasis on the, poor, the responsibility the, ha- the poor have for their own condition. Now, this is a particular um, religious view within the church. And it's a view that's associated with evangelicalism, or for anybody here who knows the Church of England, what would be thought of as the low church, the Church of England in the countryside. I kind of think of it as that bit of the Church of England that reads the Daily Mail, really. I hate the Daily Mail with a passion that can't be described, so I will be rude about it periodically and they consume me. The evangelical case was by far the most dominant and important view in the first half of the the 19th century. And it took the view, not only were individual poor people responsible for their own condition, but the only hope of actually them ever getting out of their situation lay within their own power to reform themselves. The emphasis here fell on the sinful nature of the poor. The poor were poor because they were sinful. If we could stop them from being sinful, then they would stop doing the things that made them poor. So if they stopped being sinful, they would work harder and be less lazy. They would drink less and be more sober, therefore they'd be fit to go to work. If they indulged in less sexual license, prostitution and crime and so on, they would be more upright they would be more thrifty, they would manage their resources and their money better, they would improve their houses and their living condition and their environment. And as each individual did that, each individual was morally reformed, then the lot of the poor as a class of people would be elevated and they would become better off and everything would be sunlit and happy. That view presupposed that the church as an organisation didn't have a primary mission to go out and give people charitable relief. In fact, many of them at the time believed that the giving of charity made the problem worse. If someone had an alcohol problem, then you were actually just feeding their habit by giving them money. The only way to help them was to save their soul by bringing them to church, bringing them into the sight of God and the redemptive power of prayer so they could actually become better individuals 
as they found salvation and that would improve their material condition. You had to save their souls first. Therefore, the church didn't have a charitable mission that was more important than its spiritual mission, if you like. In the 1830s and 40s, there are voices that start to dissent from that view, voices that start to argue a slightly different case. In the 1840s and 50s, for example, there's a very famous Christian minister and writer called F.D. Morris. F.D. Morris was probably the first person to call himself a Christian socialist. And he started to argue that the evangelical view was misguided because if people are living in poverty and squalor and hunger and filth and they're trapped in that situation, then you can't expect them to be anything other than sinful. And the only way of preventing them from being sinful and to make them into pious, religious, good people is by improving their environment. Once you improve their environment, you make it possible for them to behave in a better way and for them to redeem themselves. Now, there are not many voices around that agree with Morris in the 1840s and 50s, but there are some. And he has a great deal of influence on the next generation of clergymen being trained within the Church of England. Very famously, a man called B.F. Westcott, Brooke Foss Westcott. Westcott um, trained as a minister, as a vicar in the Church of England. He became an academic as well as a, a parish priest, and he started to develop Morris's ideas in quite a radical way. And he went on to become a very powerful and important figure. He became the Bishop of Durham, amongst other things. Uh, Durham in the northeast of England, for anybody who isn't familiar with um, that, that piece of the geography. Westcott started to argue that, like Morris, that the church's social mission was the single most important thing it could do, that the church actually had a moral obligation to go out and materially help people to become better off, to make their lives easier, and that this was a necessary prerequisite of them becoming better people. Now, it's interesting because it's very easy to think of that argument as just like the nature-nurture debate, and in a sense it is. Uh, Morris was arguing that it was actually the sinful nature of the poor that was the problem, and Westcott, uh, sorry, and sorry, the evangelicals were arguing that. Morris and Westcott were arguing that it's actually the environment within which the poor are nurtured that was the, the primary problem. But it actually runs a little bit deeper than that. This is genuinely a religious debate. It is about theology for these people, as well as about social policy or social welfare. Now, I hope I'm not presupposing too much, but the very, very bare elements of the narrative of the Christian Bible um, have two, well, they have many important moments for Christians, but they have two particularly important moments. One, the evangelicals argue, is primary. At the beginning of the Bible, then mankind dwells in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And through a series or one very significant sinful act, then mankind falls from grace and is cast out of paradise to find their way in the world. And the evangelicals argue that's the beginning of Christianity, that the story of, the hu of human civilization, or Christian civilization anyway, is the story of the need to redeem yourself for that fall, 
therefore the redemptive mission of the church to, make, to save people's souls is actually the primary duty according to the Bible. Westcott said, no, that's rubbish. That's the beginning of Jewish stroke Christian history because it's the beginning of the Bible. The beginning of what is specifically Christian is the birth of Jesus into the world and also the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, in the biblical account, broke up loaves and fishes and fed an impossibly large number of people. Westcott argued that actually that is the Bible's instruction to Christian churches that they have to help people and intervene in the material world as a way of, hel of helping them then to go on and save their souls. Did you see the argument there? It genuinely is a deep religious argument and not just an argument about how you should go about helping the poor. These two views had a huge impact and they still have a huge impact. The evangelical view that the poor have a responsibility for their own condition is actually a very, very powerful force in the 1980s in the, the government of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was very devoted to the idea that uh, things like poverty could be explained through individual behaviour and the quality of individual character, for example. If we go back to the 1940s, the creation of the welfare state, the National Health Service and so on by a Labour government presupposed that actually to make individuals better off and to make them better people, you had to help people materially. That's why the government, the state, started providing social welfare, health care and education on a scale that had never been known before, on the, never been known on the planet, let alone in Britain. These ideas were powerful shapers of social attitudes in the 19th century. People tended to belong to one camp or another. And by the time we get to the later part of the 19th century, the evangelicals were losing the fight. They'd lost the control, their control over the Church of England. The majority of bishops, the leaders, the, the senior clergymen of the Church of England, were social gospel people. They were on Westcott's side. They weren't evangelicals. Often they were anti-evangelicals. So the orthodoxy of the Church of England became the social gospel case, the case that argued that you should intervene in the world and give charitable relief and help people materially. But it was an argument. It was an argument that spread through other churches. So the social gospel case was winning out over the evangelical case in the Catholic Church, in the dissenting nonconformist churches I talked about earlier, Baptists, Methodists and so forth, and the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. They actually were winning and their view of the poor started to spread through wider areas of society. Coincidentally, there, at this time, along with the rise of the social gospel view, there's a new and growing type of publication. Journals, magazines start to develop at this time for appealing to mass markets. And there are three uh, uh, magazines here that actually take a campaigning stance on the issue of poverty. The Illustrated London News, which went on to have a terrible afterlife. I think, don't think it exists anymore, but until fairly recently it became a really posh coffee table magazine. It was a bit like hello for the upper classes. It was a horrible thing. Um, the Graphic and the Pall Mall Gazette, which was a newspaper. But they all campaigned 
on behalf of the poor and carried articles, illustrated articles, arguing that more ought to be done to help the poor to raise their material condition. They, they did other things. The Illustrated London News led a very, very good campaign for relief um, of the Irish famine, 1845-6. A, a potato blight hit Ireland, all the potatoes died. I don't know if you're aware of this, but over the next 10 years, about 3 million people either died or left Ireland. About a million died and 2 million emigrated. And the Palmer, a lot of newspapers blamed the Irish for being indolent and Catholic. And um, the Illustrated London News led a very good campaign, actually, a um, decent campaign, advocating relief for the Irish. Now, these were heavily illustrated magazines. I wanted to look briefly, very briefly, at two artists, Gustav Doré and Samuel Luke Files. They both contributed to the graphic and the illustrated London News, and they both argued a case through their artwork for um, the relief of the poor and a sort of social gospel point of view. But they were very, very different people and very, very different artists. Gustav Doré was a professional illustrator. He illustrated the Bible, the works of Shakespeare, the works of Dante, uh, the Italian poet, and so on. He also illustrated a big and very fabulous book um, with a man called, well, he illustrated it, and the text was written by a man called Blanchard Gerald um, about London. It's called London, and it's a collection of pictures of London, of prosperous scenes as well as poverty but it really is almost like modern photojournalism in the sense that the pictures reveal the misery and deprivation in inner London um, to the reading public, in some ways for the first time. Samuel Luke Files, on the other hand, was a member of the Royal Academy, a professionally trained academic painter who painted large canvases, sold them for a great deal of money, did portraits, did landscapes, and so on, but he also painted large canvases of scenes of poverty. Up until that point, this had not been regarded as a fitting subject for art. It was regarded as beneath the dignity of anything as grand as oil painting, which should be about great historical scenes um, or landscape and beauty and um, so on. People like Luke Files and also perhaps some of you have heard of Vincent van Gogh. Van Gogh also painted a lot of these sort of social realist campaigning pictures. These people became known as uh, social realist painters, um, and so in fact they become known as the illustrated London news um, realists because they um, had their work reproduced in these magazines to appeal to a more, uh, a larger scale um, audience. This is Gustav Doré's painting of Houndsditch. Houndsditch is that area um, between Aldgate and Liverpool Street Station. Um, there's a street called Houndsditch that runs from um, Bishopsgate outside Liverpool Street Station down towards Oldgate for those of you who know the inner part of the East End and it's a scene of poverty I've also seen this picture called Evicted a family is standing their worldly goods are put about them the children are huddled around they're very supportive they're very much a family aren't they you know they're not um, being torn apart by this they're bonding together if anything. The man looks very thin and undernourished. There is something very interesting going on, though. 
because he's wearing a long coat, a top hat. This girl is wearing a very fancy hat. So is this girl here. The overall impact suggests that Dory is sympathetic to these people and pointing out their plight. They're not being cast in a bad way. They're not begging. They're not aggressive. Um, they're not socially demanding in any way. They're defeated by their circumstances. If we go on to another Gustav Dore, Brent Bluegate Fields, 1872. This is the kind of area, I mean, uh, slightly earlier than this, a man called Henry Mayhew, a journalist, said that Spitalfields was so notorious and dangerous that you wouldn't go down artillery passage into Spitalfields were you the bravest man in the English army and armed with a gun. That's how middle-class England tended to think of the poorer areas of inner city, London, Manchester, um, Edinburgh, Glasgow and so on. So the policemen go in and they shed light on this world. And what's revealed to us isn't an aggressive, begging, thieving, violent underclass, but actually people who are just defeated by the environment in which they're living. This is the social gospel in visual form, if you like. The next picture is by Samuel Luke Files. Luke Files did, did these sometimes very large canvases and then had them reproduced as etchings for mass reproduction in the newspapers. This is one, probably his most famous um, single picture, but it's a scene of a queue waiting to get into a casual ward, waiting to get into a night refuge to sleep, basically. And you see the men here, again, characteristically the top hat. This woman's clothes, you can't quite see it in this reproduction, are actually quite fine. She's hugging a baby under her shawl there. The, the day is bitterly cold with snow on the ground and so on. A starved dog scrounging around their feet. One of the things that Dore brought out and that Luke Files echoes here is that sense of there being a slightly absurd finery about the poor. Top hats, floral hats on little girls and so on. And of course, that's an attack on people who give charity without regard or thought. I mean, there's good documentary evidence of people suffering from malnutrition in the east end of London who could go down to the gates of Christchurch and Spitalfields and off the um, railings there pull off bags of old silk gowns that the rich didn't want anymore. So you could walk around the east end of London suffering from malnutrition in a silk gown and a fine hat. Inappropriate charity. The lack of organisation. If you want to talk about one of the later... Well, I, one could call him loosely a social gospeler here, a man called Aniron Bevan, who was effectively the father of the National Health Service in the Labour government um, after 1945, used the phrase, charity's no substitute for organised justice. And in a way, what they're campaigning for is not just charity, but for organised justice. The East End of London becomes a centre of great anxiety, the poor are seen as being cut off from the rest of society, that actually it's not just in the interests of the poor that we need to help them, it's in everybody's interests, because these areas represent a colossal social threat to the rest of us. So actually, if you're a respectable middle-class person and think, well, why should I care about the poor? Well, you should care because they're actually your neighbours and they might become dangerous. The Jack the Ripper case focused the mind. In 1889, there was a serial murder 
of women in Whitechapel, mostly but not exclusively prostitutes. And it added to the sense that the area was unregenerate. Criminologists, detectives, police officers all started to actually speculate about who Jack the Ripper was and about the problem of this area. And much of that speculation depended on um, the theory or the idea of degeneration, that actually people living in these, this kind of environment under these circumstances will morally degenerate. They will get worse, not better. And that if we want to actually rebuild the nation, we have to start doing something about it. By the time we get to the um, Anglo-Boer War, a war fought in South Africa, but involving British troops, then it was revealed in recruitment drives that actually a, just an unacceptably high proportion of the men examined, medically examined to fight in the British Army were unfit for military service, and that something needed to be done about that. Now, that notion of degeneration, of there being a class in society that was actually on some kind of a downward spiral, both morally and physically, is one that chimes with the next part of the story that I want to tell. And I want to take a completely different approach now and run through that history of shifting attitudes towards the poor, but think about it through science rather than religious attitudes or um, social attitudes. And that means stepping back again and rebuilding the history. We're going to look at evolution and evolutionary theory. Now, I'm sure most of you know that Charles Darwin didn't invent or discover the theory of evolution. He did something very specific with it. There were many theories of evolution before Darwin. Perhaps the most famous is a Frenchman at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries called Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. But there are others, a man called Cuvier, um, and many others all, all over Europe. Lamarck actually was very well aware that the state of things in the world as they are now has not always been the case. People were actually discovering this partly through the fossil record, which they were exploring for the first time. They became aware that there were once creatures in the world that no longer exist, that there are creatures in the world now of which we have no fossil record in the past, and that there are creatures alive now that bear a resemblance to, but are different from the creatures that lived in the past. Lamarck said, Do we not therefore perceive that by the action of the laws of organisation, nature has in favourable times, places and climates multiplied her first germs of animality, given place to developments of their organisation and increased and diversified their organs. Then, aided by much time and by a slow but constant diversity of circumstances, she has gradually brought about in this respect the state of things which we now observe. How grand is this consideration? And especially, how remote is it from all that is generally thought on the subject? All that is generally thought on the subject, of course, in Europe at this time, was the Christian view of creation, that God created the earth in seven days, and that the creatures of the earth now are exactly those that God created, and they exist now as God created them. Lamarck saying, no, we do know that through environmental change, creatures have adapted and changed. So he has a very elaborate theory of evolution. What Darwin added was what Lamarck couldn't know, 
or didn't know, and that is the engine, the motor that made evolution happen. Lamarck knew it was happening, he could describe it, he had lots of evidence for it, but he didn't have an explanation for why it happened, for what the mechanism was. And that was Darwin's contribution. And in 1859, in The Origin of Species, Darwin summed this up as natural selection. The process of natural selection was actually the dynamic force that made evolution happen. As Darwin says here, I have called this principle by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved by the term natural selection. So, from 1859 onwards, evolutionary theory became a very, very powerful way of explaining why organisms and species adapted and changed over time. And natural selection was the explanation. Now, by and large, Darwin confined his explanations to the natural world. Darwin was particularly interested in earthworms. Um, but he also related it to um, the, the title of the other book in 1871, The Descent of Man, The Evolution of the Human Race. He didn't tend to apply it very systematically or with great enthusiasm to other areas of life, but other people did. Charles Darwin did not use the phrase, the survival of the fittest. It was used by Herbert Spencer two years before the publication of The Origin of Species. And Spencer applied evolutionary theory to whole areas of life, many of which Darwin wouldn't have thought of applying them to. And if you look at the quote from Spencer, he says, The advance from the simple to the complex through a process of successive differentiations is seen alike in the earliest changes of the universe to which we can reason our way back and in the earliest changes which we can inductively establish. It is seen in the geologic and climatic evolution of the earth and of every single organism in its face. It is seen in the evolution of humanity, whether contemplated in the civilised individual or in the aggregation of races. It is seen in the evolution of society in respect of both its political and economical organisation. And it is seen in the evolution of all those endless, concrete and abstract products of human activity which constitute the environment of our daily lives. What Spencer does is take Darwin's evolutionary theory with the principle of natural selection, apply to it a very crude soundbite, the survival of the fittest, and then apply it to every area of human life. So human history, the development of British constitution, the British polity, all these things become the subject of evolutionary explanation. Evolution is used to explain, in effect, everything. I won't go into all of the quotes here because it would take too long, um, but I want to look in particular at two or three other people, because so far the story of evolution seems to be generative and progressive. Things are getting better as species become more fit for purpose, or rather as the environment changes and adapts, successful species adapt, they become fitter, leaner, tougher, better suited to survival. Those that don't fall by the wayside, the sad truth of evolution, that there are losers as well as winners. This seems to be an upward spiral of progress in which the species, the human race in this case, is getting better. 
But people started to think, does that have to be the case? Is it necessarily the case? Could there be exceptions to evolution? Could there be people who are like throwbacks to earlier phases of evolution? One person who started to think in those terms was an Italian criminologist called Cesare Lombroso. Um, Lombroso was an odd man. He studied phrenology, the idea that you could read human character from the bumps and lines and contours in the skull. He was obsessed with studying the form of the head. Um, whenever he could, he got hold of the um, bodies of executed criminals, which were the only cadavers that you could legally experiment on in most countries in early 19th century Europe. Um, and he collected their heads. So his laboratory was full of heads in jars all around the room. He argued that criminals and criminality, and particularly families where criminality was inherited from one generation to the other, were actually doing it because of some innate characteristic or principle in them. He was very against the environmental explanation. His view was that it was about these individuals handing on inherited characteristics. And he thought in his earlier work that criminals and criminal types were actually somehow throwbacks to an earlier stage of human um, evolution. He began later to think that actually um, they, they weren't that, they were actually survivals, if you like, almost a mutant strain in terms of um, human development in relation to evolution. And he actually said, at the sight of that skull, you see, so romantic, at the sight of that skull, I seemed to see all of a sudden lighted up as a vast plain under a flaming sky the problem of the nature of the criminal. Evolution explained the incidence and persistence of criminality. So evolution had exceptions. Evolution wasn't completely optimistic. And the argument, it goes on then, um, the, the, the second last person I want to pick on is a man called E.A. Lancaster. Lancaster is really interesting. He's an important man. He was the first and possibly, I think, the only person who simultaneously held a professorship in both surgery and clinical medicine at the University of London. He taught at University College, was one of the leading doctors and medical practitioners, as well as research scientists of his day. Lancaster rethought evolution shortly after Darwin. He says, It is clearly enough possible for a set of forces, such as we sum up under the head natural selection, to so act on the structure of an organism as to produce one of three results, namely these. To keep it in its status quo, to increase the complexity of its structure, or lastly, to diminish the complexity of its structure. We have as possibilities either balance or elaboration or degeneration. Effectively, things can stay as they are, things can progress, develop and become fitter, or things can go backwards. So now the possibility, the chilling possibility arises that evolution could work in reverse, that there could be a counter-evolutionary downward spiral. And if you think about it now, you can start to see the connection. At the same time as people are starting to worry about the degenerate character of the people living in the East End of London who are caught in this trap of poverty because of some kind of innate or born-in, bred-in unfitness in them, the idea that those people are actually degenerate and might be a source of moral infection and infect the respectable poor 
around them and drag everybody down with them actually suddenly has scientific validation. The idea that actually these people might be going through some downward counter-evolutionary spiral, becoming less and less unfit, uh, more and more unfit, I'm sorry, and dragging the species down with them. That becomes quite chilling. People think, well, we need to do something about this. And the last man, I want to look at a slightly longer quote here, is Francis Galton. Galton had a lot of credibility because Galton was Charles Darwin's first cousin. So it was all in the family, as it were. He was a founder member of the British Eugenics Society. And here, the story might actually start having echoes of histories that you might have looked at in relation to the Third Reich and so on. But I'll read the second quote from Galton, which I think brings it out very, very clearly. I hence conclude that the improvement of the breed of mankind is no insuperable difficulty. If everybody were to agree on the improvement of the race of man being a matter of the very utmost importance, and if the theory of the hereditary transmission of qualities in men was as thoroughly understood as it is in the case of our domestic animals, I see no absurdity in supposing that, in some way or other, the improvement would be carried into effect. What I desire is that the importance of eugenic marriages should be reckoned at its just value, neither too high nor too low, and that eugenics should form one of the many considerations by which marriages are promoted or hindered, as they are by social position, adequate fortune, and similarity of creed. I can believe hereafter that it will be felt as derogatory to a person of exceptionally good stock to marry an inferior one as it is for a person of high Austrian rank to marry one who has not 16 heraldic quarterings. That is an old aristocratic family. It is known that a considerable part of the huge stream of British charity furthers by indirect and unsuspecting ways the production of the unfit. It is most desirable that money and other attention bestowed on harmful forms of charity should be diverted to the production and well-being of the fit. For clearness of explanation, we may divide newly married couples into three classes with respect to the probable civic, civic worth of their offspring. There would be a small class of desirables, a large class of passables, of whom nothing more will be said here, and a small class of undesirables. It would clearly be advantageous to the country if social and moral support, as well as timely material help, were extended to the desirables and not monopolised as it is now by the undesirables. This is precisely the aim of eugenics. Its first object is to check the birth rate of the unfit, instead of allowing them to come into being, though doomed in large numbers, to perish prematurely. The second object is the improvement of the race by furthering the productivity of the fit by early marriages and healthful rearing of children. Natural selection rests upon excessive production and wholesale destruction, eugenics on bringing no more individuals into the world than can be properly cared for and those only of the best stock. Absolutely hideous. Scary, horrible. He's arguing that actually the solution to the problem of the degeneration that Lancaster and others had identified and the criminality that Lombroso had discussed was actually the selective breeding of human beings on the supposition that somehow the poor, the criminal, the deviant were that way because of some biological or neurological or what we might think of as genetic 
malfunction in them that needs to be bred out of society, that you would breed human beings with the same selectivity that you bred racehorses or pedigree dogs to produce fitter stock. This idea, the British Eugenics Society still exists. The British Eugenics Society continued to grow through the first half of the 20th century, but it never has a major impact on public policy in Britain because British public policy, social welfare, goes in another direction and actually, in a sense, becomes environmentalist in the main um, and is then expressed in the creation of the welfare state after the Second World War. Where this idea has its greatest purchase, of course, is in Germany in the period between the wars, where something very like this becomes the ideology of the Nazi party. It also has a significant impact in some states in the southern half of the United States, the southern states, where it becomes the basis of racial policy. By and large, in the north, it doesn't become a part of public policy, but in the southern United States, it becomes the basis of the kind of segregationist, racist structures that existed there that was built into the law in those states, um, things like the Jim Crow law that segregated buses, which meant that black people couldn't sit next to white people on buses without both of them being charged and the black person being beaten up in all likelihood and on. What I've tried to do here is suggest you that attitudes towards the poor changed very significantly in the course of the 19th century that we move from a pre prevalently evangelical view of the poor to a view based on a, a charitable understanding of Christianity through the social gospel. But then the import of science into this argument changed it completely. One of the chilling things, and I think the thing that's really scary about this and one of the reasons why it's one of the more chilling aspects, well, it is one of the many chilling aspects of the Nazi regime in the um, 1930s and 40s, is that... In the evangelical view, the poor could be helped. Poverty could be prevented. You might agree with their view of individual responsibility. You might agree with their view that religious observance is a way of saving people. But even if you disagree with them, then there was actually an assumption that something could be done to help them. In the social gospel view, it's very obvious that the whole view is built on the notion that the poor can be helped. They'll be helped by having their environment improved and being given more material resources. The chilling thing about the eugenic view as it's built up is that there's nothing that can be done. These people need to be bred out of existence because they can't be helped, they can't be reformed. And that's the really scary part of the, the ideology underlying um, that, as well as the fact that it seemed to have the legitimacy the support of being a scientific argument, and that's quite important in the 20th century. This event was recorded live on the 26th of September, 2008, at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>